I'm going to have you stand uh, for the reading of God's Word, and then we'll, uh, we'll take a seat and dive into it. Uh, we're in John 18 this morning. Leave them on, I'll double check. Anything? I can move, move to the handheld. How we do? Check one, two. No? Nothing? Two, three, and green. No? Can we go handheld? Yeah. Okay. What am I going to do with my extra hands? Okay. Uh, we are in John 18. Uh, John 18 this morning. Uh, Jesus has left the upper room. We've been in the upper room for several months, and uh, we get to leave it tonight out into the dark night. So John 18, uh, here we go. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? And church, this is the word of the Lord. You can grab a seat. Well, you may have picked it up. The key question in our passage this morning uh, comes in verses 4 and 7, and it is, whom do you seek? Jesus asks it twice. Whom do you seek? Or maybe your translation says, who are you looking for? Okay, it's the key question. Now, just to let you behind the curtain a little bit, when uh, I'm, I'm prepping for a teaching throughout the week, oftentimes I'll be interacting with our worship leader and just kind of thinking about, okay, what, what songs are stirring in you? What is this passage kind of stirring me? What's this kind of running around my head as I, as I think through what the text might have for us, just so we can have some cohesion uh, in our worship on Sundays. And I... I texted Tula this week and said, hey, the only song that's really coming to mind is that Lionel Richie song, uh, Hello, is it me you're looking for? And I spent about like an hour just looking at Lionel Richie memes online and a total waste of time. Uh, and Tula said, thanks for nothing. Um, so that's all I gave him this week. Uh, but uh, the key question is, who are you looking for? And it's not Lionel Richie. Um, they are there to arrest one Jesus of Nazareth. But those that go there find so much more as they're confronted by the Lord in the garden. 
okay? Uh, that is our main point this morning that I want you to go home with. If you forget everything else, you know, daylight savings fried your brain, that's totally fine. I just want you to get this. Jesus is the Lord in the garden, okay? He's the Lord. He is the one in charge. He is the one who commands the scene. He is the Lord in the garden. Now, to, to hopefully better see this, we're going to look at kind of three different things in our passage uh, that will help us. We're going to see the Lord in the garden take hold of Judas's army. Uh, we're going to see him take hold of Simon's sword, and there's a slide with this, and uh, the Father's cup, okay? Jesus is the Lord. He's in charge, so he takes hold of, he takes control of Judas's army. He takes hold of Simon's sword, and he takes hold of the Father's cup. And church, as we look into this passage, uh, Jesus asks that key question of each of us. As we open his word this morning, he, he looks at us and says, whom do you seek? As we open the word, who are you looking for? And my prayer is that just like in the garden, Jesus will step forward and that we all will, will get in a glimpse, an encounter with the living God. Because these things were written so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, we might have life in his name. So let's dig in. We'll start with Judas's army. Our passage opens with Jesus finishing his words. That's what it says in, in verse 1. After he had spoken these words, all of the preparatory teaching for his departure, all of the encouragement and the warning, all of the prayers, all of the anticipation of his work on the cross, he finishes his words. And the drama commences. He steps out. He went out with his disciples, and then we're told, across the brook Kidron. Now, I have a little picture here that's going to come up uh, of, of the city. This is uh, kind of Jerusalem at the time of Jesus. There on the right, you can see the big temple mount. And scholars, I don't know how they determine this, but they think is that down here, this is what's called the lower city or the old city, that the upper room might have been somewhere here, somewhere down in here, that's where they're celebrating this Passover feast where Jesus prays with his disciples, and that they leave, uh, maybe, down th through this gate here, because this is where the Kidron Valley is, and they make their way up the hill, and then you can cut to the next slide, uh, Tiffany, we'll see a little, a little map. So they come out here, you can see the Kidron Valley here, there's a slope down this way, and then this is the, the slope that goes up to the Mount of Olives, and, you know, the, the hillside is just covered in olive orchards. And they believe that, that maybe there was a, a walled-off garden because it says they, they get to the garden and they entered it. And so they think that maybe there was a rich, you know, patron who, who owned a, a, a walled-off garden uh, full of these olive trees um, and that he allowed Jesus, for ministry purposes, to use it often. They went there often. Maybe they even slept there at times uh, when they didn't have a spot in the city. And so the disciples go out that way. They cross and they go up. Now, I don't know about you, but I often am thinking about how the story is told, and I sometimes forget that these are real places, like real places in the world that archaeologists have, have excavated, and, and they, they know that these things, you know, for the most part, they can, they can create an idea of, of where these things took place, and they really did take place. So that's, they, they go across, and they go into the garden, and then we're told in verse 2 that Judas knew the place. Okay, this is key. Jesus doesn't hide he doesn't hide. He doesn't slink off to an unknown spot. We know from other parts of Scripture that, that, you know, if Jesus wanted to get out of a situation, he just did. They tried to arrest him. He's like, he's gone. He's out of there. Jesus doesn't do that. He purposefully goes to a place that Judas knew. Now, I wonder, <laughs> I'm saying this, I wonder 
if Judas thought he somehow was like being a good spy or being tricky, you know, if he thought that he had outsmarted his rabbi and gotten the upper hand, I mean, he obviously betrays him, yes. But I wonder, you know, if he honestly thought that he could double cross the one that, that obviously reads minds. Am I, am I on here now? Ah, hello. Um, I wonder if he thought, you know, Jesus says, Judas, what you got to do, go do and do quickly. And if he's like thrown off at that moment and he thinks he's being tricky. Ah, I know where they're going to go. I can solve the puzzle and go to the garden that I know where they will be. But regardless of what Judas thought, that's neither here nor there, he gathered a band of soldiers with the officers of the chief priests and Pharisees and he went to get Jesus in the garden. Now the religious authorities, the the, the officers of the chief priests, these are the ones who are making the arrest. And we know this because they're going to go straight from the garden to uh, the high priest. So it's the religious authorities that are, that are arresting Jesus. But the Roman soldiers are there to ensure that the whole thing goes down without a scuffle. The Romans undoubtedly had heard about the triumphal entry and the crowds and the marching and the announcement of a king. The, the, the city of Jerusalem was just bursting at the seams with people because of the Passover. And, and the Romans, it would have been in their interest to make sure that a riot doesn't break out. And so they go with the religious authorities to, to make sure that this thing happens smoothly. But the combination of, of Jewish and Roman authorities, well, this implicates the whole world. It's not just one group that is responsible for the death of Jesus. It's the world. It's all of us. Now, Judas has amassed his army and has come to arrest Jesus but it is Jesus who is in control. It is Jesus who is the Lord in the garden. Look at verse 4. Knowing all that would happen, he came forward. Okay, Jesus is in control. He doesn't wait for them to, to storm the garden or to bust in. He approaches them. He is the one who steps out of the shadows of the trees into the torchlight. And he takes control of the conversation. You know, there's no officer uh, with, with jurisdiction who takes charge of the investigation. Tula and I were laughing in every American like, crime drama. There's like the local bumbling police. I'm like, blah, 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 blah. And then the men in black come over. They're like, I'll take over from here. This is my investigation now. I'm like, what? And then see, you know, the man in black and the hat and all that. Because the FBI takes over from whoever else is in charge. Okay, that's not what happens here. Jesus steps forward. He directs them through the arrest. He, he kind of leads the whole thing. He's the one asking the questions. Whom do you seek? They answer, Jesus of Nazareth. They're looking for a man. A man named Jesus from this backwater town called Nazareth. And this Jesus says to them, I am he. Now in the immediate context of the conversation, he's saying, yeah, that's me. I'm the one, here I am. But their response, it reveals more. As something shocking happens. The officers of the chief priests and Pharisees, the band of, of battle-hardened Roman soldiers, and Judas, the betrayer, standing with them, with their lanterns and torches and weapons, they draw back and fall to the ground at his word. What is going on there? Falling down, falling down, whether voluntary or involuntary, is what happens when humans encounter God. Maybe you remember Moses learning God's name at the burning bush where God says, I am the I am. 
Tell the people that I am sent you. And Jesus here says, I am. And they fall to the ground because they have encountered the Lord in the garden. Just like Abraham who fell on his face when the Lord appeared to him in Genesis 17. Just like the prophet Ezekiel when he sees a a vision of the glory of the Lord, he falls down on his face in Ezekiel chapter 1. Just like the unclean spirits possessing men run to Jesus and fall down at His feet in Mark 3, crying out, you are the Son of God. Just like Simon Peter in Luke 5, who, who seeing the miracle of the great catch of fish, falls down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Just like Saul the great persecutor of the church in Acts 9 who falls to the ground because of the bright light and the voice from heaven saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul says, who are you, Lord? And the voice says, I am Jesus. Jesus is the Lord. He is, I am. Now John told us this in chapter 1 with an allusion to Genesis when he says, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God and that Word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is the Lord. This is the Lord who separated light from darkness. The Lord who brought forth dry ground from the chaotic waters. The Lord who called Abraham out of the nations and says, I'm I'm going to make a nation out of you and the whole world will be blessed through you. The Lord who delivered his people out of slavery and Egypt in Egypt and brought the, you know, the world superpower of the time to its knees through the plague and the Passover and the Red Sea. This is the Lord who can, who can topple a giant with a sling in the hand of a boy. This is the Lord who orchestrated the movements of kingdoms and nations in order to punish his people with the exile and then judge those kingdoms for their wickedness. This is the Lord in the garden. The soldiers fall down because they realize that they have found more than they realized. They found more than they were looking for. And isn't it that way with all of us? We think we are in control. We think that that we can dabble in religion. We think we can go looking for Jesus on our terms and in our own time and when our schedule accommodates it. But when we truly encounter Him, we might hear Him speak, I am. And then we know that He is the Lord over all. Which means that He is in control and we are not. It means that we don't get to dictate the terms of our our worship or our obedience. It means that we don't get to decide how or or when or whom we will love. It means that we don't issue directives and commands to God, but rather, well, we we listen and we wait and we seek to obey Him because He is the Lord. He asks, who are you looking for? In your Bible reading, in your prayers, in your community groups, in your efforts at obedience, Whom do you seek? Who are you looking for? Is it it a a guru? A few meditation techniques to help you calm down? Is it a technician with a few tips or or life hacks on how to 
you know, better organize your pantry? Is it a therapist? Is it, is it a healer? Who are you looking for? If you come to this Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible, I can guarantee you that you will find more than you realize. And so with Judas's army. Well, next, the Lord takes control of Simon's sword. Okay, students of the Bible, they know that, that Simon Peter, okay, bless his heart, he makes a lot of blunders as a disciple. Okay, he's impetuous, he's got a temper, uh, he has a way of saying things and doing things before he has all of the relevant information. Uh, but this one in the garden is a doozy, okay? Here is the Lord of the universe, and, and with a word he can make an army just fall down before him like dominoes. And Peter thinks, well, I'm going to pull out my little machete here, and, you know, I'm going to do some damage. He tries to strike at the high priest's servant, and let me tell you, he's not trying to scare him or threaten him. No, he's trying to kill him. But Peter is not a trained soldier. He's a fisherman, and it seems that the blow glances off of, of the, the servant's helmet, and all that he's able to cut off is Malchus's ear. Some translators looking at the words even maybe think it's just his earlobe. You know, that's all that Peter's able to get. Um, Peter's the original Mike Tyson, if you will. Now, we learn from Luke, uh, Luke's gospel, that, that Jesus immediately heals the man. But John doesn't focus on that. Okay? John doesn't tell us about that because John wants us to see, well, he wants to see the Lord taking control of the situation. Immediately, he says, Peter, put it away. See, Peter, like the soldiers, he doesn't realize the full scope of who it is in the garden with him. Here is the Lord. He could call down legions of angels to dispatch the soldiers if he wanted to. I mean, this is the Lord. He could call on the earth just to open up its mouth and swallow them like in Korah's rebellion. He can, with a word, he could just unmake them. You know, he's the creator of the universe. He doesn't need Peter's pocket knife. Again, I, I don't know if Peter thought that he's kicking off a street fight or something. If he's like, you know, the little dog who like yips and bites and then hides behind the big dog. You know, he's just going to get things started and see where it goes. I don't know if Peter thought that he was protecting Jesus from getting arrested as if he was his bodyguard. We don't know what he was thinking, but we do know what Jesus was thinking. He doesn't need protection. He is the one doing the protecting. The Lord is in control. Look at verse 7. He asks the soldiers a second time. Now, I love this. We're not told, you know, are they on the ground, like, flayed out, and he's like, hey, whom do you seek? And they're, like, they're brushing themselves off, or does he just stand there and wait, like, okay, you know, guys, get up. And then he asks them a second time. I don't know. I, I like to laugh at them in that. But he asks them a second time, whom do you seek? And they say, he's narrowing the question. They say, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So, if it's me that you're after, let these men go. To the end, he's protecting the disciples. He doesn't need a bodyguard. He's protecting them. Like a shepherd, he shields the sheep. He stands in the way and protects them to the very end. See, Jesus is not a pathetic martyr. He's not someone who stumbles upon trouble and accidentally gets swept up and killed before he can you know, complete his mission. No, no, no. He is the Lord in the garden, and he is in control. He doesn't need Peter's sword. He has a different plan. And so he tells him to put it away. Now, 
there's two implications that, that I think would be worth us thinking about. The first is the kindness of Jesus towards Peter. There's just the utter kindness. This bumbling, foot-in-the-mouth clown is the one that Jesus chooses to lead his church. <laughs> wow. Peter is not disqualified for his ham-fisted mistake. I mean, he, he's given leadership. And that's a tremendous comfort to me. Because I have had my blunders. <laughs> I have made my mistakes. I have been inelegant and graceless. I have lacked tact at times in my ministry attempts. And Jesus in his kindness still stoops to use me. And so you. We need not let fear of, of imperfection stop us from making ourselves available for what God might do. He's in the habit of using people like Peter who are kind of clueless. And he wants to use you too. See, we can, we can try. And we can step out in ministry with the confidence of Christ's kindness towards us. But the second thing that we could think about, the second implication, is that the Lord in the garden is actually asking more of Peter than he could imagine. If you flip in your Bibles, just back a couple pages, chapter 13, okay? We're, we're told what's going to happen in chapter 13. Look at verse 36. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. That's the key right there. You will. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Now, we'll, we'll see that more fully next week, but, but Peter's road the road that he must walk will force him to face his own failure, the depths of his own sin. He will be brought to the end of himself and his self-sufficiency will be just crushed, just ground out to nothing. And then Jesus will ask him for so much more than, than, than just a, a fiery moment of zealous courage and bravado. No, 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 Jesus will ask him for a slow and steady march of leadership where he shows that he's willing to die not by fighting, but by speaking with boldness the very words of God and being willing to suffer the consequences. Jesus will ask him to follow him, not on the war path, but on the path to the cross. Peter will die for Jesus in the end. Church, History suggests that he was maybe even crucified upside down. He didn't seem see it, to be worthy to be die in the same manner of Jesus. He's crucified upside down. It's terrible. But in doing so, he's not earning glory or honor for himself on the battlefield. No. Instead, he's showing a willingness to suffer shame and dishonor in order to glorify and honor Christ. Maybe you remember from our time studying Peter's first letter, how much he talks about suffering, willingness to suffer and submit to authority, not cut off their heads. The Lord in the garden takes control of Peter's sword. He commands him to put it away, and he asks of him more than he could imagine. And the same is true for us. Jesus commands us to put our swords away. 
And he asks so much more of us than we could imagine. He says, follow me. Follow me and, and die. Follow me and come face to face with your sin, your selfishness, your inability, your shame. Go all the way down and then receive my forgiveness and my restoration and be empowered to follow me on a life-giving mission. And we ask, okay, well, what are the swords that he's telling us to put away? Well, is there anything we wield to feel a sense of control or to prove ourselves or as an outlet for anger. I mean, we all go through various crises in our lives, and we have that, you know, kind of fight or flight moment. You know, the, the church is going to hell in a handbasket, or the culture is going to hell in a handbasket, or my marriage isn't what I thought it would be, or my job isn't what I was hoping it would be, or my friendships are falling apart, or my family is struggling. Now, some of us are tempted to just give up and, and run away. Others like Peter, pull out swords and take whatever swipes they can at whoever they can reach. You know, at times it feels like it would be easiest just to go down in a blaze of gunfire and glory. And Jesus asks us to do more than we can imagine and to stay and to walk the slow march of sacrificial love and care for those around us. And it isn't just in crisis. This is, this is the long road of discipleship and ministry of walking with others. We wish it could be this big moment of like passion and courage and glory. And, and there are times of those in the Christian life, but a lot of times it's the slow, steady march of sacrifice and suffering. He's asking us to put away our self-driven efforts at pride and glory, our ministry attempts that are all about us, our rights to anger and bitterness, to put it away and then be willing to lay down our lives in the way he does. Not for our own glory, but for his. And this brings us to the final piece. The Lord in the garden takes hold of Judas's army, takes hold of Simon's sword, but lastly, he takes hold of the Father's cup. Verse 11, Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? I like the way that D.A. Carson puts it in his commentary. He says, Peter's blow was as clumsy as his courage was great. The tactic was as pointless as Peter's misunderstanding was total. Peter's bravery is not only useless, it's a denial of the work to which Jesus has just consecrated himself. The work of, of, of taking the Father's cup. Now, I'm not sure if you were able to discuss it in your community groups this week, but the cup... The cup is an Old Testament image. It's, a, it's an allusion to the cup of God's wrath. So Psalm 75, verse 8 says, In the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed, and He pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Or Isaiah 51. The, the prophet is, is, is trying to wake Jerusalem after they have drunk the cup, after they've experienced the, the suffering of exile. And, Isaiah says, wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering, God's punishment for your sin. Or Jeremiah 25, he turns to the nations and we read, thus the Lord, the God of Israel said to me, 
Take from, me, take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. They shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I am sending among them. This is the cup of God's wrath for human wickedness, the cup that we all deserve. And Jesus is going to take the cup on behalf of the world. So earlier in John, John the Baptist saw Jesus and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Well, the Lamb will do that by drinking the cup that the Father has given him. Now, interestingly, John, John doesn't include Christ's agony in the garden where he's down on his knees and he prays three times, If possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. That's not in John, but it is there behind our text. What John chooses to show us instead is Christ's resolve. The Lord in the garden, after praying, will take hold of the Father's cup. And he'll drink it down to the dregs. Again, Jesus is not a passive victim of his own success. Jesus is not duped with a bait and switch. No, he is an obedient son who receives the cup that the Father has given him to drink. You know, it's not as if he, he agreed to the incarnation, comes down, takes on flesh, and then all of a sudden the hammer and nails get pulled out, and he's like, whoa, 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 whoa. I never thought it would come to this. No, 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 he knew. He knew what was coming. John tells us in those powerful words in verse 4, knowing all that was going to happen to him. He knew, he knew it all beforehand. Before he took the cup, he knew what he was drinking. <laughs> he knew it all. He beheld it all. Not just the physical pain and suffering. Not just the shame and humiliation. But the full depth of the cup of staggering. The cup of wrath. The cup of the Father's anger poured out on, on all sin and wickedness. And onto him instead of the world. He knew it all. He knew where he was headed before time began. He knew where he was headed when he took on flesh. He knew where he was headed when he was baptized. He knew where he was headed when he overcame temptation. He knew where he was headed when he stepped out of the upper room and he went to the garden. He knew. Jesus is in control, poised and willingly stepping forward to receive the Father's cup. He knew all that would happen. He was the one who stepped forward. He commanded the conversation. He puts all swords away because he will drink the cup for you. For you. Judas's army discovered that he is so much more than they realize. Peter's sword is sheathed and he's asked to do more than he can imagine. And the Lord takes hold of the Father's cup as he does for us so much more than we could dream. This is not just a, a meek man in the torchlight caught up in some conspiracy. This is not just your rabbi or your leader starting a movement. This is not just a guru or a technician. This is the Lord of the garden. Come to take the Father's cup, the Father's wrath, for your sin. He, he was there in the first garden when Adam set this whole course in motion. He was there. And he's here 
in the garden, stepping forward out of heaven to make it right. And the Lord is there every time you sin. Every time you you choose the path of death and destruction. Every time you, you turn from the Father's will and command. Every time you step out to be Lord of your own life, He's there in the garden when you eat the fruit. But He's also here in this garden, reaching for the Father's cup to drink your punishment. Like the officers, we think we're looking for Him, but the Lord is the one who's come for us to pay our debt by taking hold of the Father's cup for us. And so He turns and He asks us, He says, Whom? Do you seek? Maybe, maybe we hear our voices meekly say, Jesus. But under his gaze, you know, we search our hearts and we ask ourselves, you know, who are we looking for in Jesus? He's so much more than we realize. He will ask of us so much more than we imagine. But He did for us so much more than we dare dream. I wonder, I wonder if some of us have have seen Him this morning in this text. I wonder if if some of us have encountered the Lord and, and maybe we need to fall to the ground to get on our knees, not out of terror, but out of love and repentance and awe. And just kneel before the Lord in the garden. 